This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss cross-border cultures in North America. How do we understand the relationship between peoples and cultures on both sides of uh, what is a very artificial, contested, and problematic border between the United States and Mexico, a border that in many ways does not reflect the history of the cultures and the peoples on both sides? Uh, We have the uh, special privilege today of discussing this issue uh, with not only an expert on the topic, we often have experts on the podcast, but someone who is not simply an expert, but someone who also writes deeply and reflects uh, upon these issues as as an individual, as well as a scholar and a political activist. Uh, and a great teacher. Uh, It's Ilan Stavins. Uh, Ilan is uh, one of the preeminent essayists, cultural critics, and translators in the United States today. He is the Lewis Sebring Professor in Latin American and Latino Culture and the Five College 40th Anniversary Professor at Amherst College. Uh, And and, uh, Amherst is one of my favorite places. A number of my PhD students actually teach there, as well as wonderful students. So it's uh, it's really nice to have uh, an Amherst connection here. Uh, Dr. Stavins is a native of Mexico. He has his PhD from Columbia University. He has written so many books. uh, And again, it's impressive because they're academic in some cases. In some cases, they're political. In some cases, they're literary. Uh, He he runs the gamut. Uh, His most recent two books that I want to recommend that I've had the the good fortune to read in the last few days, uh, one is a book-length poem called The Wall, On the Wall Between... um, uh, North Amer- in North America between the United States and Mexico. And then he has a graphic novel called Latino USA, which is really wonderful, wonderful illustrations and discussions of what it means to be Latino in the United States. Uh, Ilan, uh, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. It is, it is a joy to be here. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Dr. Stavins, with Alan, we have, uh, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. What, what is the title of your poem, Zachary? Where the River Once Unfurled. And, and before you read it, I should uh, tell our audience that uh, you and Dr. Stavins have actually worked closely together through the Great Books uh, Summer Program, which is a program for uh, high school students who are interested in the great books. Uh, it's a summer program, and it's a program that Dr. Stavins created. Uh, so, so you have a connection not only to the subject matter, but to our guest today, right, Zachary? Certainly. Okay, well, so let's, let's hear your poem, Where the River Once Unfurled. My fathers, they were born with borders long, my mothers, forged within the Russian pale. The words they chose to speak were nationless, the tongues were rivers, and the rivers tongues, the water old, alive for long past worlds. And I have rafted down the river's prong, and felt the desert breathe, and storm, and hail. The trees were wilted, dragged from agelessness, signs speaking English from their Spanish lungs in seas of sand that sing of rhymes not twirled. And when the poets sing of Rubicon or Moses watching Jordan from a dale, one cannot help but think with shamefulness of all the prints left in the border dung, the ones still where the river once unfurled. What is your poem about, Zachary? 
my poem is really about my personal experience with cross-border cultures and it, with borders in general. My, my family history goes back to uh, Jews in the Russian Pale, as I mentioned in my poem, but I also live in the American Southwest, so I experience the border and cross-border cultures on a very uh, routine basis. Uh, Ilan, I understand from Zachary that these are also very personal issues to you, and that, of course, is evident in in your work. How do you uh, approach these issues? What draws you to thinking about cross-border experiences? I, myself, am also uh, a Jew, the product of many diasporas, Jeremy. I come from Poland and the Ukraine, and further back, uh, other parts of that Pale of Settlement, the generations have uh, erased their identity, and I cannot trace them uh, concretely enough. Uh, the Jewish experience has been about migration. My uh, great parents tried to come to the United States. Immigration quotas made it impossible. They were stationed in the Caribbean, in Central America, and eventually settled in Mexico, part of the family eventually did move north and my immediate family just stayed there. Very grateful to the country that had opened its arms in moments of uh, fear and desperation for Jews, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I grew up in Mexico with that sense of gratitude, uh, but also with a feeling that um, I was there by accident the way Jews are by accident in many places, in that Jews travel uh, from one country to another, uh, often oblivious of the the borders that uh, differentiate those countries. They make those countries their home, mostly uh, as rentals, never fully as uh, owners of the house. That is the feeling that I had when growing up in Mexico, that the house was mine to the extent that I would stay there, and that if I would move onward, then I would be somewhere else. And I feel that that uh, uh, attraction, magnetism toward borders, but the desire to jump them, to turn them upside down, uh, is ingrained, it's it's deep in my blood. Eventually, I moved to the United States. I feel I have built a a home here for me and for my family. But I see that U.S.-Mexican border as a crucial, if slavery is the original sin of this country, I think the Mexican border is the the unavoidable mirror where we see ourselves reflected with all our limitations, with all our handicaps. And it is a a mirror where where dreams crash, where they collapse. A border, a mirror that keeps people out, that uh, offers a false sense of exclusiveness. And uh, for that reason, uh, a border that is a constant reminder of the the continent where we are placed, the origins that we have, that we might have betrayed along the way, and uh, the possibility too, because hope is the American currency um, by by and large, the, the, the possibility of uh, breaching beyond that border and finding that there is somebody waiting for us on the other side. Mm-hmm. It, it's such a compelling uh, personal account and, and intellectual journey that you describe, Ilan. Uh, 
most families uh, have that kind of experience. Why does it remain so hard for us to imagine our way outside of borders? Why, why does this mirror, as you put it, why does it remain so resilient despite the effort of so many generations and scholars like yourself and Edward Said and others seeking to break it down? Why is it so hard to break it down? It is hard, Jeremy, because um, at, at, at the core... Humans are about turf. They are about uh, finding a place called home, claiming it, and defining it by not only stating who is in, but emphasizing who is out. I wish that borders could be erased, but it's it's an elusive uh, possibility. Um, The dream of having a neighbor is actually much more civilized. The question is, how to engage with the border in a constructive, humane, a, a, a harmonious way. It is not about erasing that border, but it's about realizing that we can be peaceful uh, with, the, with the person that is on the other side and also humanize that, that person, finding that the culture that they have is as le- legitimate, as authentic as ours is, and uh, and, uh, for that reason, that they will also bridge out in in our direction and recognize that we are not only fluff, plastic, um, dollar signs, but there is much more. And and, uh, how do you you get young people uh, at Amherst College and elsewhere and your readers to see that? I mean, I, I struggle with that here in Texas. We're so close to the border. But yet Austin can feel so very far from, from the border in many ways. And, and the ethnic and geographic and cultural intermixing is so evident, but also erased every day in the way we define our scholarship, our writing, our politics. So, so how do you work through that with your students and your readers? I will answer that question, Jeremy, by telling you that at uh, close to 60, uh, I never really dreamed of being a teacher. I wanted to be an adventurer. I wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a, a, a writer. But a teacher, a teacher felt to me in my young age, confining. Why would I want to imprison myself um, in, indoors? And why would I want to be repeating uh, the same thing year after year? I realize now that uh, there is no better activity, no better endeavor that I could do, and probably others as well, than teaching. From all, of all the things that I do, writing and publishing, and uh, in, I, I find teaching the most, the most humbling and the most consequential. To the point that I, th- I think that I was. I was born to refuse it, but eventually to to acknowledge it. In that, uh, if any, if I can have any contribution, it is in the classroom as a lab, as a as a test testing place, where uh, together with the young generation that is curious and looking to understand its own role in the world, I can explore all sorts of ideas ideas, all sorts of possibilities, all sorts of challenges. I, I love teaching. I, I, I find that I learn much more than I teach. I find that I get the pulse of the country and the world by being in touch with the 
12-year-olds, I sometimes teach middle schools, or 16-year-olds in high school, I teach undergraduates, I teach graduates. I teach also uh, programs for senior citizens. And in the past 10 years, Charing, I've been teaching in prisons in upstate New York, in in different places in Massachusetts. And, uh, And teaching in prison is even more rewarding because there are walls that are built for the inmates not to not to leave and you have to literally bring the world into that that habitat i teach shakespeare in prison and you know the 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 usual response is do they understand shakespeare's language can they really identify with hamlet or macbeth or 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 Othello or Prospero, no population approaches Hamlet in, with such passion, in my experience. Wow. Like the, like the ones in jail. They, they, they can see him as a window. And, and I think that teaching for them and for the other populations that I have is really the key to helping move forward in a hopeful way. All I can say is amen. I, f- I feel the same, the, the exact same way. I feel privileged to be a, a teacher uh, every day. Zachary, you have a question? Yeah. So I know that in particular, you study how language and literature is affected by these borders that we erect for ourselves. How in North America, particularly between the United States and Mexico, has language been defined by this border? Zachary, that, that's, a, that's a terrific question. And I, I am I'm really grateful to you for asking it. To me, the most important feature of an intellectual life is are the words, the language that we use as bricks to build the edifices that are our books or our class classes or the lectures that we give. And I am I'm, I'm fascinated, maybe even hypnotized, by how language uh, unites us, how language separates us, how, where language is born, how language dies. What are the new words that are we are constantly incorporating to our lexicon? How big is our lexicon? How many words do we have at our disposal? In what way the words that we use are similar to the the words that uh, those that came before us and using the language is? Or do words change meaning? Do they change uh, intonations? Do they do they become something that they was not seen for them at the beginning? Um, and I am particularly attracted when it comes to borders uh, with to the concept of uh, new languages that emerge in the border. Uh, I'm interested, for instance, in the border between the Israelis and the Palestinians on something called Hebrea that is neither fully Hebrew nor Arabic, but a hoshposh, uh, a mishmash, an in-between. I'm interested in Flanglais, the mix of French and English, Portuñol, the, mi- the mix of Portuguese and Spanish in the border between Venezuela and in Brazil or Portugal and Spain. And I am absolutely stunned in, in the committed to Spanglish. Uh, the, that encounter, that, that marriage and maybe that, that divorce between Spanish and English in the U.S.-Mexican border, in, in Puerto Rico, in inner cities, in New York, in Miami, in Houston, in L.A., in Chicago. I love how the, the rhythms of Spanglish are neither Spanish rhythms nor English rhythms, but something in between. I love how 
it borrows, maybe it steals from these two languages. I love the fact that in the U.S.-Mexican border, there are 25 million Spanglish speakers. I think that that is a nation unto itself with its own official tongue, with it, that means with its own identity. And it is a, a nation that is creating its own literature, and literature is memory. There are poems written in Spanglish in, in El Paso, in, in uh, Ciudad Juarez, in Brownsville, in Tijuana. There are, there's tons of lyrics. Uh, there are plays. There are novels that are written in Spanglish that now need to be translated either into English or into Spanish because Spanglish is neither one, again, nor the other. So I am, I'm, I'm, I'm really struck by the fact that in this border, in this mirror that I was telling you about, a, a new civilization is emerging with its own way of communication. And it is not unlikely that maybe in 50 years, uh, somebody's going to win the Nobel Prize for having written uh, a work in Spanglish that will change our perception of how to see reality as a whole, not only on the border, but in general. Right. Well, I mean, just coming back to your uh, analogy to Shakespeare or to, to Dante, I mean, these are figures who took languages you were not supposed to write in uh, and made them made them a vernacular, made them a written vernacular. Mm-hmm. And, and the same should happen. You're right. Uh, for Spanglish or for many of these other uh, new mixes, these new hodgepodges, as you put them so, so well, it seems to me that's crucial to democracy, right? Providing people with words and allowing groups to create their own words to describe their experience. Um, do you see that as one of the roles of literature as sort of providing a democratic outlet for that expression? And how do you see that working? I absolutely do, Jeremy and Zachary. I, I believe that literature is uh, uh, the glue that brings the participants in democracy together. Democracy is, by definition, a very rowdy, very chaotic, um, very messy system of government. It exists by, by screaming to one another, or at least by trying to make an argument to convince those across the aisle that our ideas are better or, or that we can find a compromise. And I think that the glue that brings democracies together is the dialogue. The literature is dialogue, but it's not only dialogue in the present tense. Literature is dialogue across time. We are in conversation with the dead and with the unborn. When we open Leaves of Grass or Rappaccini's Daughter by, by Hawthorne or a poem by Emily Dickinson, we are in conversation with each of those authors. The way we are in conversation with authors that are not yet with us, that are our children or grandchildren and whose words are already in our dictionaries, but they will appropriate them. They will turn them into, into tools to say something that we can't even imagine. We live at a time when literature is losing ground, or at least that's the perception. Less and less people read complete books. Attention spans are short and elusive. Um, The whole publishing industry is in a state of crisis. And yet, for me, it is essential that we recognize that literature is the, 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 the question mark that we throw to the person that is just in front of us to ask them, who are you? How is it that you arrived here? What makes you my neighbor? 
and in what way we can, we can collaborate. I think that literature is the most exquisite and the most complex of those endeavors in democracy. And you take it out in democracy as an edifice collapses. Well, and, and that's so well said, Ilan. And, and it also seems to me uh, everything you say about publishing is correct, the challenges we face, uh, you and I and others as authors. On the other hand, I'm always amazed at how my students get access to literature in ways that are different from how you and I did when we were younger, uh, listening to audiobooks, listening to podcasts. That's why we do this, this podcast, in, in fact, uh, through rap, through the spoken word. I mean, it, it's almost as if in some ways we're more surrounded by poetry than ever before, just often in non-traditional forms. No doubt about it. In fact, I could argue, we could argue that uh, people read more today than ever before, or at least more people read more today than ever before, read tweets, read Facebook posts, read uh, other forms of messaging that uh, we text one another. Um, we are of the written word, and we have figured out a way to make that written word coexist with the icon, with the visual image, um, to the extent that we love graphic novels, we love comic strips, we love videos in, in Netflix and in, in Hollywood movies. But there is something, and I, you will agree with me, Jeremy, there is something that literature, the plain, old-fashioned, written page that uh, sorts itself out in front of our eyes the moment we engage it, can do that no other form of communication can do. And that is the capacity to go deep into the complexities, the, the ambiguities of, of human behavior. Other forms might communicate, but they, but they are more superficial. I think a novel will tell you not who is good and who is bad, but how good and bad are negotiated in the characters and in each of us. And I think that that, that, that instrument that we call the novel or the poem allows us to feel that our... Our daily endeavors are more than simply slogans that we vomit so that others might see where we stand politically. Um, I love when a poem doesn't undress fully in front of the reader. It requires two, three, four readings before it surrenders its message, if, if it ever does. I love when a poem actually, actually has more than one message where it can be perceived in a number of ways. That's what a tweet doesn't do. A tweet wants to tell you in very simple and direct words with very limited vocabulary what the author thinks. The author of a novel or of a poem or of a play will, will wonder and wonder as they write and will not be fully uh, represented uh, in single straightforward straightforward terms. And I think that that's humanity. I think that that's what matters after all. That's what connects us with the Greeks and with the Israelites and with the Phoenicians, uh, with the Middle Ages and with the Renaissance. Complexity, the capacity to doubt, uh, not to be sure of ourselves, to question, uh, to one day think one thing and the other day probably think something different. 
I, I think that's so well said, and there's definitely a difference between immersing oneself in a in a in a, in a large work, a, a novel, a buildings roman, a work of history, uh, versus uh, what can be very motivating, but but be more like a a short meal rather than the long meal, the long marination. On that point, I think Zachary wants to ask you about some of your work in particular. So you've recently written a, a book-length poem, as we mentioned earlier, about the borderlands of the United States and Mexico, in, entitled The Wall. Um, how does poetry uh, allow us to, to see this border and these cross-border cultures in a way that is very different from how we traditionally see them? How does it bring us beyond the political rhetoric? I start my answer, uh, Zachary, by telling you that I love the poem that you read. Thank you. Very powerful, and uh, you know, a good poem uh, to me is one where the words not simply say what they are supposed to say, but the right words sit in the right place on the page. And even without seeing, but only listening to it, it felt to me that that poem had the right words where they should be. And congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, I was I was struck as a Mexican American when around uh, 2015, uh, President Trump began denouncing those that come from South to North as bad hombres, as criminals, as uh, imposters, uh, ready to take uh, classroom spaces from innocent Americans, uh, stealing the medicines in order to help their families from innocent Americans and ultimately undermining the entire American experiment from innocent Americans. And I felt it very personally. And I, I, at one point, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I asked for a month leave from my teaching job and bought an old car and literally traversed the U.S.-Mexican border from one end in the Gulf of Mexico to the other uh, in the Pacific. And um, I, I came as close to touching the border when I could. I zigzagged it, uh, jumping with my Mexican passport to the other side and then with my American passport to this side to talk, to immerse myself with the various communities, uh, to see what they think of one another and to smell and listen and taste the tastes and smells and, and sounds uh, that exist on both sides. Um, I tried on, upon coming back, writing an essay. I thought it could be uh, a book long essay. And um, poetry kept on infringing itself on me. Um, it, 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 it appeared to me that it was begging uh, to be used in order to talk about the US-Mexican border. And that in fact, it wanted, it wanted me to use it in the most minimalist uh, way possible by creating a poem where a single word, sometimes a preposition uh, or a noun or an adverb can take a line. When you open the book uh, and read it, the, the wall, you see that it's, everything is so thinly shaped. It's almost like a thread. I wanted through words, through language, to recreate the pattern that the U.S. border has, uh, as if you were walking on it or at its side. And um, I, I felt very satisfied when I completed 
the book. I wanted it to be a kind of journey of an epistemological journey, a journey of, of, of knowledge, of recognition of this wound that is that separates the two countries that have defined me, a wound that is also in the middle of my chest and that will, will never fully heal. And um, poetry, poetry was the medicine. Poetry was the instrument to be able to um, survey that that U.S. Mexican border, as frightening as the border is, uh, as exhilarating as it is as well. Um, the the feeling that I had was of a of satisfaction of realizing that it, all the dogmas. All the pronouncements and denunciations that uh, we hear all the time on both sides, on Mexican, on the Mexican side, on the American side, have little to do with the people that live in the U.S.-Mexican border. They are humble. They are dedicated to raising their kids, um, finding meaning in life, uh, being happy the way the rest of us are, and uh, in that, and they are. Often um, upset by how much energy descends on them, trying to push them in this direction or the other. I think that poetry can do something that uh, that no other form can do, and that is explore the rawness of a uh, of a wound uh, in as vivid uh, a, a, a way as possible without being scientific. I, I have to say, having read uh, your your poem, your book length poem, "The Wall," that you're referring to, uh, I, I had exactly that feeling. It it captures in the in the orthography, in the presentation, it has a very tactile feeling to it. And and before before you even think, I think reading your words gives gives one a feeling of just the journey you described, Ilan. And, mm-hmm. and I can't oh, think of a, I, I can't think of a form. That would replace that would replace that, and 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 I think that that transitions us to to what is is always in a sense our last question. Every week we ask this question of our, of our experts: uh, What can we do? How do we go forward? How do we take this knowledge and experience to actually do better going forward? What what is it that we can do as a society, particularly young people, many of our young listeners? What can they do to embody? Uh, the the lexicon, as you said, as well as the feeling of this cross border culture, and and bring it out more in our society. How how can we make progress? I I believe we are a, we are living at a at a crucial, decisive turning point. Every generation has the impression that it is called to do something that the generations before didn't do or didn't finish. Uh, but uh, such are the changes that are happening right now that it feels as if that responsibility is all the more demanding of us, of the old and of the young. Uh, changes are happening happening at a very rapid uh, speed, sometimes uh, almost dizzying. Uh, I think there's a big gap between the young generation and the old generation Sometimes the language, the languages that each of these generations ha- have don't really communicate with one another. It seems as if it's a dialogue of, of deaf, uh, the deaf people. The answer to your question is to always, for, from my point of view, no matter how exhausting and exhaustive it might feel, 
to know that the democracy is an imperfect uh, system of government, but it's the best possibility that we have, and that democracy cannot be a cannot be imposed. Democracy has to be reinvented every day by its own citizens. Uh, and I think that uh, it is crucial for young people to feel that this democracy is theirs, that they have a voice, and that uh, it is important for them to read as well and to look at a shelf and find out what, what book has not been written, what voice has not been included, and to write that book and to include that voice in the best, most complex possible way. And finally, I would also say, Jeremy and Zachary, that, that um, we are not going to dismantle borders. Um, we are going to live with them for forever. It is a feature of the human mind to compartmentalize space, uh, to divide property. I, I here invoke a line from a poem by, by uh, Robert Frost, Mending Wall, uh, that I love, you know, the very first line of that poem is something there is that doesn't love a wall. It seems as if the, the nature itself doesn't like walls. But the last line of that poem, good fences make good neighbors. And uh, we need to recognize that uh, within borders, there is much that can happen. That's very powerful. Zachary, does this inspire you? Uh, Do do you see the power of literature and poetry in helping to uh, remake what happens within borders and across borders in the way that that Ilan has laid out so beautifully here? I think so. I think what makes this moment so powerful, even amidst all our divisions, is that we are redeveloping that poetic language. We are we are redefining how we think about poetry and how we can use poetry to rethink these borders and these divisions. Well, and I, I love the metaphor that Ilan used, which is the same metaphor we used uh, 106 episodes ago when we started our podcast uh, and that we referred to on numerous occasions. It's from Franklin Roosevelt when he talks, just as Ilan did, about how every generation must write the next chapter of our democracy. And, and we're writing it every day, often in Spanglish and various other new <laughs> forms. Uh, and I think that's so crucial. I think the work you do, Ilan, inspires and models exactly that behavior. And 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 maybe that's that's the best we can do is to inspire and model and, and get out of the way for another generation, right? And the best that you can do, you're doing, Jeremy and Zachary, having a podcast that can go deep into thought and explore democracy in all its limitations and all, and all its hopes. It is in and of itself a sign of, of, of a better future. I appreciate that so much. And, and I'm so grateful, Ilan, for your work uh, and for your teaching, for your being a scholar and a public intellectual at the level that you are, but also taking the time to, to go into prisons and to speak at community centers and to speak to young people like, like Zachary through the programs you create. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on, Ilan. I hope we can have you on again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to both of you. Uh, much admiration for what you do. Mutual admiration from our, our side. And Zachary, uh, thank you as always for your poem. And thank you to our listeners. This is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. 
The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.